to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. And today we are going to be having a discussion episode. We are going to be tackling some of the issues around how the basic income bumps up against the status quo. I really see status quo broadly as one of the biggest obstacles. When I talk to people about basic income, usually with a long conversation, once they get past some initial hurdles, they think, if not that it's a great idea, at least that the idea has merit for further exploration. Yeah, in fact, I think you could sum up almost every objection to the basic income with the word status quo, just with different details inserted based on who's doing the talking. So we're going to try to delve into some of the key areas where it seems like status quo thinking is is really creating a barrier to people accepting or even sometimes recognizing how the idea could actually be really helpful. One of the first ones that I have seen often is those people who have more of an incremental vision on, on how policy progresses thinking that the way we're going to make progress is by making small tweaks to the programs we have today, rather than exploring big new ideas that very much differ from what we have right now. And honestly, I think we saw this in the last election. There's a strong political appeal to big wholesale ideas that present a vision that is very clear and is maybe different from from what we have right now. But I think if you've been particularly operating in Washington for the last 5, 10, 20 years, just because there hasn't been an opportunity to implement big policy, it's, it's very easy to get caught up in the thinking that that will persist indefinitely. One of the first things I hear is like, well, it sounds like a nice idea, but that'll never pass Congress. Yeah, exactly. I, I think one of the recent examples that that really stood out is uh, for those of our listeners who saw the Intelligence Squared debate between Andy Stern and Charles Murray arguing for basic income against Jared Bernstein and Jason Furman, both uh, economists from the Obama administration, if you looked at the arguments that were being made, almost all of them boiled down to, oh, like, this is too big, we have to come at these problems in smaller ways that, that more resemble what we have today, and that's something as, as radical as what you're proposing just doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah, I guess most people aren't thinking like, okay, what politically could we accomplish in 10, 20 years? I will say that I have noticed a pretty marked shift in recent months um, that seem to coincide and likely be caused by the November elections. I think that a lot of what was standard conventional wisdom leading up to that got thrown out the window and suddenly a whole lot more people are willing to consider that maybe some things that are much different than they are today might might actually be quite possible. So one thing that we should keep in mind is that even though, yes, there is this grand vision of a universal, unconditional basic income, we will still have to have stepping stone policies along the way. So, for instance, we're currently very excited about the uh, trials going on in Canada, or that are about to start in Ontario, and it's 4,000 people in one area of Canada. It's, it's very small on one hand, but you know it's looking toward this broader vision. Uh, I'll throw in another one that I actually just heard about today, uh, Ro Khanna, I think is how you say his name, who is the new representative in Congress from Silicon Valley, uh, is going to propose a drastic increase in the earned income tax credit and has no real 
uh, hope or optimism around that becoming law anytime soon. And also, I think he is looking more toward uh, basic income, which the earned income tax credit is not exactly a basic income. But, you know, these are, are little steps that we're taking with this broader vision in mind. Yeah, I think, and there's talk at least of some state-level policies that start to move us in that direction, whether through some universal child allowance or through um, some other smaller universal income driven by a carbon dividend or something like that. But I, I think people often do miss that when we talk about big ideas, it doesn't mean that's the only thing being considered. It just means that we're keeping that big end goal in mind, that we're saying that this is where we want to end up, and there will be smaller policies along the way. Uh, we can be strategic about how we fight for it, but we are always saying this is where we want to, where we want to be ultimately and, and having that North Star policy to fight for. Another major monument of the status quo that we want to take on is the austerity versus abundance mindset. And so this kind of inserts itself in the background of a lot of basic income discussions that I've had, and Jim, I'm sure you've had too. Basically, it's people generally have the idea that our resources are ultimately scarce and there's only so much to go around. So this one actually surprises me often because while most basic income advocates I talk to recognize that incrementalism is a bad status quo perspective to keep when talking about basic income, I found that a lot of advocates themselves fall into the austerity mindset when thinking about the policy. As they're trying to figure out how do you actually pay for providing basic income to everyone, they end up in this zero-sum mindset where they're thinking about, oh, I have to cut something or figure out a very, very specific source of funding in order to be able to cover the cost, rather than recognizing that we have an amazing amount of wealth in this country at this point. And I think a lot of it comes from kind of reverse causality thinking. Like, just one example is, at least here in the Bay Area, we have a lot of homeless people. And I think it's natural to think, well, they're just aren't enough homes to go around. Otherwise, why would people be sleeping on the street? Uh, in fact, there are enough homes to house the homeless population six times over uh, in the U.S., which is kind of an incredible statistic. Uh, I'm sorry, it's enough empty homes, not enough homes. <laughs> you won't have to take on a new roommate. Um, so we, we've got Empty space for, for these people. And, you know, it's not just homes. It's, um, it's wealth, generally. Yeah. If you look, our GDP has grown by $4 trillion in the last 15 years. And we're growing enough food in the U.S. to feed everyone twice over. So there's absolutely enough resources to go around. The idea that inherent to our society, we don't actually have enough to provide for everyone is a complete myth. Yeah. And... You know, it is a logistical challenge to get the the abundance of food to hungry people, but that's kind of the magic of cash, is that you give people cash, they will find food. You know, that, that'll mostly sort itself out. Yeah. And I do think something that is so relevant here is there's a quote from Nelson Mandela, which is, poverty is not natural. It is man-made, and it can be overcome and eradicated by the actions of human beings. And I think that's very much what we are looking to do with basic income. And I would just tack on to the end of that quote, especially today. So 
I would say that incremental versus radical change and then austerity versus abundant mindsets are the two most obvious ways that I see status quo thinking blocking progress on, on basic income today. But I do think as, as we move forward, as basic income becomes more of a mainstream idea, and as we get to the point where we're actually starting to be close to enacting real policies, we are going to start seeing some pretty serious pushback from industries that are actually rooted in the way things are done today, and particularly in poverty. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I think, not too controversial to say that there are giant industries out there that see the economic opportunity in having people that are desperate or just have difficult circumstances that, you know, ultimately there's money to be made there. Yeah, if you look at our larger prison system that exists today, it, it has become, one, very privatized. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of companies that are cashing in on the fact that we have such an enormous prison population in the United States. And the driver of people going to that system is ultimately poverty. It's people who are being put in situations where they don't see like they have other, better options and so are ending up in a situation where they're susceptible to, to ending up in jail. Yeah, and of course, those people also tend to not have the same legal resources to defend themselves when they they do get involved in the court system. Uh, Another one is payday loan companies. Um, So, you know, someone who's middle class or above probably won't need to get, you know, $200, $1,000 a month to just pay their rent or to feed themselves uh, for the end of the month. But... Uh, people who are doing less well have to do that regularly, and there are all these payday loan companies that can charge exorbitant interest rates, you know, just for uh, a short-term loan, and you know they could effectively go out of business if if we had a robust basic income. Yeah, I, I think as as we move forward, we're gonna start to see rumblings from from some of these sectors and. And any others that are really have their economic model based in the idea of, of people being on the edge and, and needing to claw for resources in, in times of desperate need. So one more topic that we wanted to take on here is maybe more of a philosophical one, which is the idea that we're to some degree decoupling income from work. And this can make people pretty uncomfortable. This whole idea of this puritanical work ethic where in order to actually be deserving, you need to have a paying job. This is so much at the core of how people view life to a large degree. It's not something that's existed forever. If you go back more than certainly a few hundred years, and even I would say early 20th century, there was a pretty different view on people's deservedness and, and whether it was in fact necessary to be slaving away the job to actually make ends meet. But it is certainly rooted in the American consciousness that we have today. Yeah, and I'd say this is another kind of reverse causality situation where I think people somewhere in their minds assume that we have to be doing all this work, otherwise everything would fall apart. Um, I can personally say I have I don't think ever had a job <laughs> that was, you know, necessary for, like, directly causing me to have a house and to have food. Like, I've never built houses. I've never 
farmed outside of like my own backyard. And, you know, I've done things like blogging and marketing and, you know, that contributes to the economy. It, it has some effect, but it's a, you have to connect a whole lot of dots before you tie that to me or anyone else being able to eat or feed themselves or take care of their basic needs outside of the income it brought in. And I think something else worth considering here is we often talk about automation as a need for basic income because there may not be enough work to go around in the future, which doesn't really fit with our model today. But there could be a positive side to that, which is automation is allowing us to do more for less. And so it means we don't need to work so much. And so that we actually can produce enough to cover maybe not just basic needs, but far more than that, and have plenty to go around so that everyone has access to it. Yeah, I mean, automation should be good news. Like if we have deemed certain tasks to be valuable, and then you just have to hit a button and the, they happen by themselves, that's great, right? And as long as we have a, a society and an economy that makes it okay for you know the, whoever was pressing that button before to, to step back. I do think it's important to also remember, though, that basic income doesn't mean we're expecting people to not work. It just means that we are decoupling that income from their nine-to-five jobs. They may still be working as much or even more than before, but that work could be somewhat different. It could be a broader definition. We could be recognizing care work at home is actually valid work. We could be recognizing art. We could be recognizing community service. All valuable and important things, but ones that aren't actually getting compensated today. And I feel like this is a case where opponents of the basic income or just people who are hesitant about the idea can get a little bit extreme in the degree to think the, to which they think people are going to quit their jobs and watch TV all day. Uh, proposals you see out there are usually maybe around $12,000 a year per person, maybe up to 15 or 18 in today's dollars. That's not really enough to live certainly not a lavish life. And here in San Francisco, you know, you'd barely be, you know, getting your housing together for that amount. So it's not like the economy will just be kind of on a volunteer basis. Uh, you know, people to maintain their current standard of living are going to need to work. And we actually have some pretty hard evidence on this front. We have the Canadian experiment in Dauphin, where they provided the whole town with a negative income tax. We had four negative income tax experiments in the United States, and the de decrease in work was pretty small. It was like on the order of 10%. So we, we know pretty clearly that even if we were to provide basic income, we wouldn't have a mass exodus in the workforce. It would just open up more options. And a lot of that exodus, I believe, was you know, high school students and parents mm -hmm. and people who you, you can understand why they would leave the workforce and maybe focus on something they deemed more important. I do think it is worth at least considering, though, some of the variants on basic income that, that people are talking about that, that may make this more palatable from a working perspective. In particular, I'm quite interested in the proposal from Roy Bahat, which is that we should actually, along with basic income, create some sort of national service program and that 
upon entering adulthood, you could spend a couple of years working in service, and then basic income effectively is your pension that you receive throughout the remainder of your life um, as uh, as compensation for for being an active citizen. Yeah, yeah, that's um, an idea that I'm still kind of tossing it around in my head personally, but I think I like that one, and I like the idea that you know probably a lot of people would do it after leaving high school or college, but you could you know, maybe do it when you're 35 or, you know, whatever you want, you know, yeah. depending on your life. I think there's a lot to explore here, but I, I think there's there's both an implementation question and a really in some ways a marketing question. And, and, and I do think that this is this is a really big obstacle that exists today. And so we're going to need to be be thoughtful about about how we approach it. So on that note, hopefully this discussion has helped you and will maybe help some other people get out of their usual headspace and how they think about the basic income and how it will interact with our society. Yeah, as I said earlier, when I've actually had a chance to have longer conversations with people on basic income, they usually go really well. I usually am able to get through to them and get them to think critically about what a world with basic income might look like and how the assumptions that they have today don't necessarily need to apply in that situation. But it takes a fair amount of effort to get them there. And one thing that I think will help and has helped already are all the pilots that are going on right now. And we've got Canada and Finland and uh, Kenya through Give Directly. The evidence that's come out from similar work has been really good, kind of surprisingly good, of, you know, both in how people generally don't stop working and a lot else in their life, like health outcomes and even things like domestic violence rates directly as found have gone down. Uh, so you know, as more evidence comes out, hopefully this will be a less scary topic. And I think not just the evidence, but the actual stories. Hearing about how people's lives are changed and how receiving a basic income can really open up so many more options, can lift them up out of some really bad situations in a lot a lot of cases, but actually giving people a chance to empathize, because I think that's that's the other obstacle here. It's, it's always easy to think about, oh, what would the other person do? How would they, how would this have a negative effect or, or not, not turn out well for them? But if we can actually show people how basic income can be transformative across the board, that I think will, will certainly help getting around the, the work hurdles uh, that they see as obstacles, um, and I think can set us up with uh, a very strong coalition to, to be able to overcome some of the more institutional status quo obstacles that will lie ahead. All right, that'll do it for this discussion episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and a big shout out to Eric Davidson, our producer. To hear more episodes like this and some fantastic interviews, please subscribe on iTunes, or you can go to thebasicincomepodcast.com and subscribe on the podcast service of your choice. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.